0: Hey, it's Ray Sturtevant with Upper Room, and I just want to invite you to our podcast. And today we talked about the Davidic covenant. And what's exciting about the Davidic covenant is it's a promise to David that there was going to be a member of his family on the throne of Israel forever. He got a foretaste of that. And then it's actually going to be the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus during the kingdom age. And so, just excited about this podcast, and just welcome you to take a listen. Uh, It's Maranatha, and we look at the major covenants throughout uh, Scripture. So, a lot of new believers in here. So, in order to understand, um, the Bible is uh, compiled from Genesis onward uh, through covenants that God has made with men. And... Anytime God enters into a relationship, it is preceded by a covenant. There are terms to that relationship. And so in order to understand kind of the the, the fullness of this, you have to see the major covenants that he made. So if you just randomly open up to Jeremiah, who is after David, and he's talking about David, you would scratch your head going, why is he talking about David? Well, because he said something to David that has not yet been fulfilled. And we tonight celebrated the work of the cross, which is the work of salvation, which is finished. Everyone say amen? amen. So, the work of salvation is finished, but the plan of redemption is not. Uh, because sin still exists in the world, sin still exists in this room, sin is still in our lives. But there is one day when God is going to completely redeem us and creation from the effects of sin. This is the plan of redemption. Uh, it is accomplished to the work of salvation, but it is still unfolding today. Amen? So this uh, series has been unpacking the Maranatha cry, which is, Come, Lord Jesus. And as we grow in understanding around these covenants, we actually have the ability in understanding to partner with the Lord for his purposes in the hours ahead. And one of the concerns that I have for millennials specifically is there's a cultural narrative that is the antithesis to this. There's a cultural narrative that is that is uh, it is it is opposite of the scriptural one, and it's actually right now louder than this. On your social media feeds, on the news. So I wanted to kind of crank up the volume in here and say, listen, you've got to get rooted in this, so that you don't buy into that. And it's not just enough for me to tell you. Like me, to be convicted of it, to inform you is one thing. But you, to be convicted enough to dive into it yourself and really find it in here and you develop a relationship with these pages is my goal. And so we've gone deep in this series. We've, we've broke out a whiteboard. We've got uh, graphs and charts and we're talking about things that maybe you haven't heard talked about on a Sunday, but I think it's time for us to get beyond the milk of the word and into the meat. And I want to feed the hungry, and there's a hungry, hungry, hungry body that meets here. And so if you would, get your phones out. I've asked you every week to get your phones out and to go to your notes section. And I want you to continue taking notes from where we left off last week. So if you're new, I'm going to do a quick review um, here on the screen. So, uh, Maranatha means what? Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. So, it, it has, it has, uh, it could mean he came. Gosh, I am terrible at this board. He came. He's coming. So, what? Uh, so in the Aramaic, it could mean past, present, future tense. It means Jesus came, it means Jesus is coming, and so come. And we've looked in the Maranatha theme at the covenants that he made. So the first covenant is the covenant of redemption. <clears throat> this is a covenant that God made with God. So this did not involve man. This was a covenant that God, the Father made with God the Son, made with God the Spirit. So the triune God had a plan, and that plan was to redeem creation before anything existed. Have you ever, like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, it says, Before the foundation of the world, he chose you to be holy and blameless. Now that's a profound thought because... Before you were created, he chose you to be holy and blameless. But if we were to just inspect this week, let's just look at the last seven days, all right? We're going to take an inventory of your last seven days, and we're going to say, would it be defined as holy and blameless? Okay, what about the last year, years? Most of us go, no, that's, that's, that's not, I, he, he must have not chosen me. But the plan of redemption based on the the covenant of redemption, um, which is the unfolding plan of redemption, will make you holy and blameless. Like it's not up to you to fulfill that. It's up to him. And it's based upon an agreement that he had with himself that the son was willing to execute the plan that the father initiated, initiated. And the Holy Spirit was going to apply all that the Son accomplished. So we spoke through that. If that doesn't make sense, go listen five weeks ago, the covenant of redemption. So uh, week two, we looked at the Edemic Covenant. And this is the covenant that God made with Adam, the first man. And he said, listen, I'm going to be in relationship with you. I'm going to provide for you. But the covenant is a covenant of works based on one thing. Don't eat from the tree. Now we know what happened. He broke covenant. And there was the fall of man. We talked openly about that, and the problem now that sin presents to us. But there was a plan of redemption prophesied in that account. In Genesis 3:15, God says, "There's a seed that's going to come through Eve, and that seed is going to crush your head." Genesis 3:15. So what we started looking at are the seeds. And the first time the seed is found, this is a 2,000 year gap, giving you a big Bible here, is the Abrahamic covenant. This was based on two things a land and a people, descendants. He said, Abraham, go to a land that I'm calling you to go to, and I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. And the plan of redemption ensued through Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had Joseph. Joseph had how many sons? Joseph had two. I fooled you. Jacob had 12. (laughs) Jacob had 12. Come on. Uh, Jacob had 12. And that would be the... uh, the Israelites, And they would be in Egyptian captivity. So God raises up a deliverer. His name is? Moses. And so we have the Mosaic Covenant. This is a thousand year gap. So we have the Mosaic Covenant. And last week we looked at the Mosaic Covenant, which I hope you saw in a new lens. Uh, we looked at it through the lens of betrothal. We looked at it through the lens of God actually courting a people. When he told Moses... To go to the Israelites, he said, I'm going to take them to be my people. And that word for took is actually used uh, previously as a husband taking a wife. And so God chose Israel to be his bride, and he begins to flex as a suitor pursuing his girl. And he flexes by delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh, by parting the Red Sea Not only does he show himself as protector and defender, but then he shows himself as provider by providing them in the wilderness. And then they went to Mount Sinai where they were married and the law was the marriage certificate. So this involved courtship, proposal, and marriage. So that's the Mosaic covenant. That's last week. So this week, uh, we're going to look at The covenant that God made with David. It's called the Davidic Covenant. It's found in Second Samuel Chapter seven. And this is a Mount Everest chapter in the Old Testament. So it's a chapter that you should be very familiar with. There's a lot that points to 2nd Samuel chapter 7. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's forty prophecies that are fulfilled in 2nd Samuel chapter 7. There's a lot surrounding this chapter, but it's a covenant that God makes with David. It's an eternal covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. It's a covenant that's not based on David. It's based on God. It's not based on David's descendants. It's based on God's commitment to David himself. And it is still being fulfilled tonight, and it will be fulfilled when Jesus returns, which is really, really awesome. So put your hand on your heart. Uh, Jesus, open our hearts up to scripture, open our hearts up to your word. Uh, I pray that it would be living and active and that you would make this very practical, very tangible, Lord. For those uh, in this room, I pray in the name of Jesus, amen and amen. All right, so to to understand David, I want to point you to, you're you're in 2 Samuel 7. I want you to go to Psalms 132. Psalms 132 is another chapter you need to be familiar with. Got lots of chapters that you need to be familiar with. Uh, Psalms 132, in order to understand David, you've got to know Psalms 132. Uh, Psalms 132 was a vow that David made uh, with the Lord. He probably made this as a young man. Um, In the sheepfold, God found David. And um, he made a vow to the Lord. and, And Psalms 132 records that. It says this. It says, remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until. Everyone say until. So this was an all-consuming desire that David had. He wouldn't give sleep. To his eyes, he wouldn't rest, he wouldn't lay his head until he found a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He wanted to find a resting place. If you look in verse 8, it says, Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Arise. So David, at some point in his life, made a vow to the Lord. Lord, I will be and I will build a resting place for you. David has a lot of descriptions that when you pass into glory, if those descriptions are associated with you, you've lived a good life. He was known as a man after God's own heart. Uh, The book of Acts tells us that David fulfilled every purpose for his generation. Uh, He's the root. uh, Jesus is called the root of David. Uh, Jesus Jesus actually sits on the throne of David, and David found favor before the Lord, and I think one of, the, one of the reasons David found such immense favor from the Lord is because of this vow that he made. I believe he carried in his heart one of God's greatest desires, and it was to rest with men. And 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is actually in a position where he can fulfill the vow that he made to God in Psalms 132. So you've got to know intricately Psalms 132 in order to understand 1 Samuel chapter 7. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1, we'll go there. This is, again, the covenant that God is going to make with David. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet. We know that Nathan was a friend of David. Uh, David actually named one of his sons Nathan. And so I think this is two friends talking. I don't think this is actually David going to the prophet for a word. I think it's him sharing his heart's desire. And David says this, he says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So if you look in the chapter before, David had actually brought the ark back to the center of Jerusalem, and he had put it in a tent. We'll talk about that here in just a second. David's tent. It was different than Moses' tabernacle, but David had put the ark in a tent. But the ark was surrounded by curtains, it was, it was, think of like uh, uh, tarps. It, it was that type of setup where this precious token that represented the presence of God. It is, you know, what God gave to Moses. It had been in the holiest of holies. David took this box and he put it in a tent, surrounded it by curtains. And David is looking at it and he, in this, in this context, a foreign king had just built David a temple, uh, a, a house. Uh, It says, I live in a house of cedar. That description for cedar is really important because there's no cedar in Israel. That cedar was imported by the king of Tyre. And the king of Tyre built David this exquisite house. And I think David is seeing the Lord putting grace upon his life as a leader. That these other leaders are saying, hey, we're with you. We're going to send resources to build your house. And David knows he didn't get in this position by his own strength, might, and strategy. He knows that he found a grace as a shepherd boy. And he's standing in this place because God chose him long ago. And so in his blessing and in this place of promise fulfilled, David's going, God, I get to fulfill my greatest longing and I am going to build you a house. I'm going to build a dwelling place where your ark can rest. It's going to be ornate. I will use all of my resources to build you a home. The nations will know that you're the God of Israel. The nations will come to see what our God has established under my reign. And this is that moment. And so Nathan's like, bro, I've walked with you a long time. Go and do all that's in your heart. That evening, the Lord comes to Nathan, who is a prophet. And David receives two answers. So this is 2 Samuel 7, 3 through 7 is God's no. No. through 17 is God's yes. And 18 onward is David's response. This kind of gives you the the outline of this chapter. So here is is God responding through the prophet Nathan to David. And he says this in verse 5. He says, Go and say to my servant, Thus say thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have moving I've been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle, wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, that I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house? Now at face value, this looks like David's being rebuked. But I see a lot of emotion behind this because God is looking at David's desire and I think God is going, I have not spoken this desire to anyone. I've dwelt in tents this entire time. I have not asked anyone to do this. But you would do this for me. If you don't believe me, 2, Samuel, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 8, at the dedication of the temple that his son would build, Solomon says this: Second Samuel, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles 6, 8. Check this out. Write this in your notes, 2 Chronicles 6, 8. But the Lord said to my father David, so at some point the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well. So this is something that pleased the Lord. Do you see that? Why? Because I think it's a desire that the Lord had, but I think it's a desire that he hadn't told anyone. And so, God says no to David. And the primary reason he says no to David um, was because he was a man of bloodshed. Uh, Spiritually, there's reasons for that. When blood is shed, God takes an account. And he was a man of war. He was called to be a king. But there would be a son that would follow him that would be a man of peace, and God would grant him the grace to build the house that David desired to build. But because of this desire, I want you to see this. God says no at first, but his yes is beyond David's comprehension. And here's one of the points I want to make tonight is sometimes your no's, sometimes the things the Lord blocks you from entering into are actually positioning you for your greatest yeses. Like, I really want you to see that. Sometimes you desire to do things for the Lord, but the Lord... The Lord has greater desires for you, and so, so a temporary no is oftentimes unto yes. his no's are impor- as important as his yeses, and if you blow through his n- nose—that's a weird word—blowing <laughs> through his nose. <laughs> but if you miss the nose, like if you're just like Lord. Lord, I don't trust in your goodness. I don't trust it. It's, then you'll end up back in this place. You'll end up coming back, and you'll continue to have that decision over and over and over because he's gracious. But sometimes his no's force us to trust him so that we can get to his yeses. His yeses are better than yours. And so David is receiving a, a no. You're not going to be the one that does it. But then look at what the Lord says yes to and this is the davidic covenant that god makes with david this is one of those vertebrae and the backbone of scripture it's really important that you see this verse 8 now therefore you shall say to my servant david thus says the lord of hosts i took you that's the same language that he used towards israel It's the same language Abram used towards Sarai. It's the same language Jacob used towards Rebekah, Isaac, Rebekah. I get those girls confused. Isaac, they all used it in marrying their wives. I took you. It's it's marital. It's covenantal. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people. Psalm 78 verse 70 talks about this. You can write that down. I'm not going to read it but it's a, it's a reference to um, him taking him out and the types of leaders God's looking for. Verse 9, I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies before you. I will, make your, I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. This is Abrahamic language. I will make your name great. Verse 10, I will also appoint a place, here's land, Here's the promised land, promised place. I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and plant them. And they will live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, so God's reflecting on his history with Israel, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. This is towards David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, David, when you die, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, which he would, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. This is as much for David as it is for Solomon, M- meaning he's, he's talking about the promise of David's legacy going to his son, but as we'll see here in just a second, Most of the kings were evil that preceded David. But God is saying, I am not going to take this covenant away from you based on their behavior. So, so important. Verse 15. Oh, verse 16. Verse 16 is it. This is the covenant. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There's the covenant. Second Samuel seven, verse sixteen: Your house, David; your kingdom, David, shall endure before my eyes forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God makes covenant with David, and from there David responds. And David, David's humbled uh, ten different times in his responses. He used the word serp- servant. Uh, And like five or six times is the word forever used. Um, He starts out by just exalting the Lord. And then in verse 23, he says, And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel. This is still true today. Whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed, there's our word, for yourself from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people, Israel, and your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, therefore, our Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning me, your servant, and his house, confirm it forever and do as you've spoken. David is saying amen to the covenant. That your name may be magnified forever by saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant, David, be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. I believe he's shaking in his boots because of what God has promised to him. And he's saying, I I, in faith, am going to echo these words back to you, that you're going to establish my house forever. So let's look a little deeper at the covenant um, that he made. I want to show you three things out of verse 16. Three things out of first six, uh, verse 16. The first thing God promises... is to build, establish a house. I will make a house for you. Your house shall be established for forever. What is a house? A house is a family. A uh, house is um, something that you come into. Um, I think another, another uh, translation, sometimes it's house. Other times it's the son of David or the branch of David. So I would put these terms, which we'll see them in a second. So, David's house would not come and go. David's house would be established beyond his death. That God has promised to build a house for him. This is seed language. This is the redemptive plan coming through uh, the line of David. Um, If you look at Jeremiah 33, verse 14, can you throw that up for me? Uh, This is Jeremiah hundreds of years later prophesying, and he taps into this prophecy. Check, check out this. This is, this is powerful uh, language. 33, verse 14. Thanks, Art. So Jeremiah is prophesying to a people whose house is desolate, actually. He's prophesying um, they would be in captivity. The house would be destroyed. But he's pointing to this covenant that he made with David about the house of David, so look at this. Thirty-three, fourteen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. So, future days when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the what? The house of Israel, the house of Judah. This is the house of David. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. This is a prophetic picture of Jesus. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Look at the next verse. We're going to keep flying through this. Keep going. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Do you see the promise being prophesied through Jeremiah way after David's death? And look at this. Not only a man sitting on David's throne, but the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrificial uh, sacrifices continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Keep going. Thus says the Lord: If I, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with who? With who? Come on, put your thinking caps on just a second. Jeremiah is upholding the covenant that we just read about in 2 Samuel chapter 8. He's saying if God can break his covenant with the day and his covenant with the night, then his covenant with David can be broken. What does that mean? It's not going to be broken. So that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with Levitical priests, who are my ministers? Wow, I love that description of Levitical priests. As the hosts of the heavens cannot be counted and the sand on the seas cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. This is such a phenomenal prophecy. I'm going to stop there. I could keep going, but it's just amazing. Well, what's my point? Is that the prophets that succeeded David are still holding up this covenant over? the nation of Israel. And then when Jesus came, so after David, let's look at the descendants of David and the the kings of David. So David's the first, well, he's the second king, but God makes covenant with him. He rejects Saul, makes covenant with David and says, through your lineage, I'm going to establish my kingdom forever. And so you have the following kings. Can you put up the, the graph? You have the following kings. Um, after Solomon the kingdom split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. There was the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel which we just read about. But this is what's interesting is look at Israel's record on the right. Those are all the kings. There's 39 kings. And this category says did we do good or did we do bad? Did we do good or did we do bad? Now red is bad, green is good. Now there sure is a lot of red on the right. Am I right? Am I right? So think of Jeremiah after looking at some of the, like, twisted, twisted demonic, like, antichrist leadership over Israel. And he is like, Lord, he has this prophecy that he breaks out. And he's like, God's covenant to the moon, his covenant to the sun is the same for us. In spite of these leaders, God has made a promise. There's only 8 out of 39 leaders. It's 20% of the leaders were good. But both ended in captivity. Both ended in captivity. And after... Uh, <clears throat> so Zerubbabel would come back and they would, they would rebuild a temple. Uh, but there would be a 400-year period of silence. And then Jesus emerges. So you've got all these prophecies. You've got this covenant that he's made with David. You've got Israel, which has been in captivity for a long, long time. Jesus emerges. They're under Roman captivity at the time. Jesus emerges, and everyone is asking this question. Is this the son of David? Look at this. Can you put up those verses, Art, for me? The first description in Matthew 1.1 is that uh, Jesus is the son of David, son of Abraham. There we go. Son of David, son of Abraham. Uh, Matthew 12, 23. All the crowds were amazed at what Jesus was doing. And they were saying, this man cannot be who? The son of David, can he? Is he the prophesied Messiah? Is he the prophesied king? Matthew 15, 22. A Canaanite woman from that region came out, began to cry out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. You've got a. These aren't just random descriptions of Jesus. These are people. Maranatha! They're anticipating a coming move, and they're seeing Jesus move. And this can it be? Is he the one? Keep going. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David." Mark ten forty eight. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. In John chapter 7, a dispute emerges amongst the Pharisees. He cannot be the son of David, for the son of David comes out of Bethlehem. He's a Galilean. But we know Jesus was born as David was in Bethlehem. Keep going, I, I like this. And Jesus began to say, and he taught them in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He's actually teaching them about himself. John 7, 42, has not scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from the Bethlehem, the village where David was? That's what we just talked about. Romans 1, verse 3, this is Paul, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. Keep going. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Revelation 5.5, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. I didn't give you this scripture, but I'm keeping you on your toes. Art, can you put up Revelation 22, verse 16? Check this out. I love this. has the root of David in it. Watch this. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. <laughs> How is he the root and descendant? It means he was before him and after I undergirded his life, he sprung up from me, and I came through him. (laughs) Come on, this is emoji head-blown, like, oh my gosh. God was really committed to this covenant that he made with David. This graphs the covenant that we're in, I believe, our understanding of these covenants that preceded The Gospel and the New Covenant are so important for us to understand because God is still committed to that promise that he made to David. And he's still committed to the Israel people. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater son of Bethlehem. Jesus is the greater shepherd. Jesus is the greater suffering servant. Jesus is the greater unexpected candidate. Jesus is the greater wilderness wanderer. Jesus is the greater substitute, the greater warrior, the greater king. When you line up Jesus' life and David's life, Jesus is greater. David was a prototype of what the Messiah's reign would be. So God promised to establish a house. Wow, I can't even read my own writing. preach. The next thing is that God promised to establish a kingdom. And this would be forever. So I think of a house being a family, being A lineage being the seed that's passed on. When I think of a kingdom, I think of how that house impacts its surroundings. If you think of a kingdom, uh, it represents the authority of a king. And so uh, David would be promised a kingdom that would be fulfilled through the Messiah, King Jesus. And Jesus would be given the key of David. So everyone write the key of David. This is an important topic. And there's two scriptures I want to point you to. For time's sake, I'm not going to get too deep into these. But the first is Isaiah 22, 22. The next is Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. These are the only two times the key of David is mentioned. But if we're going to talk about the kingdom of David, we've got to understand the key of David. So Isaiah 22, 22. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulders... When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. So a key gives us access. Thank God, I don't have a key to the upper room, but thank God someone does. I was outside this church service actually texting everyone because Joel asked me to lead prayer with him tonight. And I was texting him like, hey guys, I can't get in. (laughs) I don't have a key. And so thank God someone has a key because keys give us access. This talks about the key of David, which is under the kingdom of David, which is actually a prophecy pointing to the rulership of Jesus, and so you see this. This is actually about a king uh, post David, but it says the key of David will rest upon his shoulders. Jesus, when ad- addressing the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3:7, look at this. Revelation 3:7, it says, "And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia." So this is a New Testament writing. This is to an established church. This is Jesus talking to him. He who is holy. Who is true. That's Jesus. Jesus is holy. Jesus is true. Who has the key of what? There's Jesus holding the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one will open. The kingdom of David is about the authority of Jesus. It points to the authority of Jesus. It points to the rule and reign of Jesus. It points to Jesus being king of kings. Lord of lords Matthew 16 Jesus talks to Peter about this I'm giving you a ton of bible and I'm not apologizing so just keep taking notes Matthew 16 verse 17 this is when Peter confesses that he's the Christ Man if this stuff if 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 15% of what I'm saying sets in your heart you can get on fire for God Your zeal is not enough Your zeal is is so small and weak compared to his zeal. His zeal has been burning for thousands of years for this. What we're talking about is God's zeal to fulfill what he spoke he would fulfill. And when that starts to touch your heart, bro, it's like putting your finger in an electric socket. That's like a 220 through your bones. You go, oh my gosh, I get to be a part of this? My story is under this narrative? Yes. Emoji, head bump. Okay, look at this. This is You hear key stuff. So Jesus uh, has just revealed himself as Messiah Christ to Peter. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. It's the rock of who Jesus is, the revelation of who he is. I will build my church, and the gates... Of Hades will not overpower it. What are the gates of Hades? Gates of Hades are demonic powers. The gates of Hades, Jesus has been given the keys to death in Hades. So he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. This is about locking and unlocking, this is about binding and establishing. We did it tonight in this room. If you were in sin tonight, we declared forgiveness. It's not my idea. It's it's by the the authority that Scripture gives us that we can say you can be freed tonight from sin, from guilt, from shame. I, I believe this is how we exercise the authority of Scripture over our lives, and we unlock things for one another. Are you following me? So, this is the key of David. Um, I could look at, you could look at a number of things, just for, for time's sake. Um, I'm not, I, I want to look at one prophecy, though. Uh, it's in Hosea chapter 3. I just want you to see, this is littered throughout Scripture. In Hosea chapter 3, uh, God tells Hosea to marry a, an adulterer, a prostitute, one that cheats on him. And... Uh, It's prophetic of what Israel's doing to him. So God would have a wife, which we looked at last week, but she would be unfaithful. She was unfaithful at the wedding with the golden calf. Like, it didn't last long, and she would continue to be unfaithful throughout uh, her time. But Hosea chapter 3, look at this prophecy. This is such a cool prophecy. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. This is the picture. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel Though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Why raisin cakes? (laughs) (laughs) Must be like that cinnamon coffee cake at Starbucks, man. That gets me. I said no today to it, though. I was really proud of myself. Hosea 3 2. So I bought her for myself uh, 15 shekels of silver, a Homer, and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man uh, so nor shall you have a man, so I also be toward you. Uh, Next verse. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Afterwards, this is the verse I wanted to show you. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return And seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness. What are those last words? That's a last day's prophecy. That's to be fulfilled. There are scriptures in Ezekiel 33 and then also in the 40s that talk about the millennial reign of Jesus. That David is reigning with Jesus. Will David actually be reigning He could be because he's going to come back with him. But this is prophesying a future reality because that covenant that God made with David will be fully fulfilled through Christ in Israel. All right, last point. God promised him to establish a house, establish a kingdom. And the last point is that he would establish his throne. I've misplaced my pen. There it is. Now we know that Jesus sits on the throne of David. Uh, but one of the one of the end time prophecies that 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 I think are it's it has it it has been partially fulfilled and is still being fulfilled, is out of Amos. It's chapter 9, verse 11. So if you've been around the prayer movement at all, you've heard Amos 9.11 put up. Can you put that up? It says, in that, in that day, Amos 9.11, in that day I will raise up the fallen tent or booth of David. I will wall its breaches and will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Eden." That's the, uh, the Gentiles. So this, this Amos 9-11 was actually spoken in the New Testament in Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, 16 and 17. This is the brother of James at the council in Jerusalem, but he says this, "'After these things I will return "'and I will rebuild the what?' The tabernacle of David. "'Which has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So this is a prophecy about the Gentiles being able to receive the gospel, being grafted into these promises. Establishing, ultimately, the throne of Jesus, but this says that the fallen tent of David uh, would be established. And one of the things that I... I think of when I think of the throne of David, um, when I think of the throne of Jesus, when I think of our community is I I can't help but look at the throne of David and look at the throne of Jesus and not think of praise and worship. Uh, And and follow me here for a second. It may seem like I'm taking a right turn, but I think this fits really in the flow of the throne of David. Um, David would say in Psalms 22 that the Lord is enthroned upon what? The Lord is enthroned upon the praises of His people. So praise praise enthrones. All right? We're talking about God establishing His throne. Well, one of the things David did when his throne was established in Israel, we started in Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, talking about the ark dwelling in curtains. Do you remember that? Yeah. Remember we looked at the ark was dwelling in curtains. Well, David's tabernacle was different than Moses' tabernacle Now. This is going to be a, a big enchilada, and I'll probably unpack some of it next week. But David's tabernacle was different than Moses' tabernacle. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. Okay. So we're familiar with ta- uh, Moses' tabernacle. What was Moses' tabernacle? It had three sections. It had the outer, the inner, and what? The holiest of holies. Now, where did the ark dwell? The ark dwelt here. This is where the ark was. And so there were were furnishings around the ark that were used for altars and points of cleansing. And there were a lot of protocols that they had to go through. So this is Moses' tabernacle. Uh, David's tabernacle was different. David's tabernacle was a tabernacle like Moses'. But it had no... uh, divisions there were no different rooms it was one room and david put the ark in the center which is kind of it's kind of wild like why david how did david get away with that how did david do that he surrounded it with 4000 it's 4000 Four thousand. Thank you. Gosh, <laughs> poor me. Uh, these are musicians and singers. I'll give you it. First Chronicles seventeen through basically twenty-five. Describe this, and then there were four thousand gatekeepers. Now, Moses' tabernacle was still going in the time of David. It was just in a separate location. But David brought the ark into David's tabernacle. Uh, Ray made this point earlier today. I believe believe that David's tabernacle represented mercy, triumph, over judgment. I believe he tapped into the mercy that would be given to us. I believe he tapped into... uh, Again, where do we start? We started in Psalms 132. Lord, I want to establish a resting place for you. Well, in part, David did. This tabernacle would last 33 years. It was a prophetic picture of the life of Christ. And and here's the thing. So he surrounded the ark with Levites, singers, musicians. They played continuously. It was a house of prayer. Like, the majority of psalms that we have were written in the tabernacle of David. They were either written by David or the Levites under David. And a lot of them prophesied the coming of the Lord. You're going to hear of, well, I'm not going to get into that. But um, this is Davidic worship. And the last thing I want to show you, so this is about the throne of David being established. It's about the throne of David. But I think part of the throne of David being established is enthroning the Lord. Like when David was on the throne, he put the Lord in his rightful place. When David was on the throne, he enthroned the Lord over Israel. He made the ark central to everything. First Chronicles 13.3 says, We are going after the ark, for we didn't in the days of Saul. My leadership is unto enthroning the true leader. And this is what's happening in this age. I believe the Lord is enthroning himself upon a generation. I believe the, the cultural Christianity mess where like I've been teaching for over an hour and I think this is just going to be normal because we're going to be hungry. I think it's going to be normal. I think worship services like today where we're actually singing the word and we're, we're, I just feel like there's a flow. I'm not saying we haven't, we haven't figured out much, but I think church as usual, what we've known, I'm grateful for it, but where we're heading, God is, God is the needles moving. So, so here's the deal. Uh, Look at this. This is the last thing I want to show you. There were seven Old Testament revivals. Seven. Everyone say seven. Seven Seven Old Testament revivals. Seven moves of God. Every one of them. Do you have that? Every one of them. Jehoshaphat's Reformed. Every one of them, including putting musicians and singers at the center again. Once they instituted Davidic worship, Reformation happened. Look at this. Jehoshaphat's Reformed, 87 B.C., Establishing singers and musicians. The Levites stood up to praise the Lord. He appointed those who should sing to the Lord. They came with stringed instruments to the house of the Lord. Jehoda, who's the priest, two kings after Jehoshaphat, restored the temple with worship in the order of David with singers. Jehoda appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord uh, to the Levites, to the burnt offerings, rejoicing with singing as it was established by David. You'll see that. As David prescribed, in accordance to David. You'll see that a lot. Hezekiah's revival included restoring singers and musicians as David commanded. You see that? He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord, stringed instruments according to the commandment of David. Josiah's revival restored full-time singers and musicians as David commanded. He said to the Levites, prepare yourselves following the instruction of David. The singers were in place according to the commands of David. All right, we could go through all of them, not just for time's sake. But Davidic worship brought restoration. Davidic worship brought reformation. Davidic worship brought revival. And so I believe when Jesus walks into the temple and he's flipping tables, he's, re- he's able to, in zeal for his house, he's able to rebuke them because they had a standard. They had a picture to see the activities that should have been taking place in the temple, but they forsook it. And so David wasn't rebu- Jesus wasn't rebuking them because they didn't have a greater context. He's rebuking them because they knew what they should have been doing. And I think, I think studying the life of David, if you look at this, like mercy triumphing judgment, I think David tapped into something, something that what the future church should look like. Perpetual, unending, unceasing worship and prayer before the Lord. Because ultimately, if you look at this, and I know I'm now teaching David's tabernacle, but if you look at this, compare that to Revelation 4 and 5. Compare this reality that David built for 33 years to Revelation 4 and 5. This is what's happening in heaven. And David somehow saw a pattern in heaven, and he said, Listen, if that's what you've surrounded yourself with up there, I'm going to surround you with it down here. This is how we want to plant churches. This is I, I want to convict pastors of this. Like the sermon isn't the center. Jesus is. And I'm not saying that sermons, I'm not saying that sermons aren't unto Jesus. I think I think there's a lot of awesome preaching. But, but man, we need environments. Environments where the presence of the Lord is being tended to. Preaching preaching is needed more than ever. I am not dogging preaching. I'm doing it now. We need preachers and we need proclaimers of the gospel. But we also need environments where the gospel is not just being proclaimed and demonstrated, but it's being celebrated. And that celebration should be unceasing. Like I heard Alan Hood say one time, we give him 24-7 because we can't give him 26-8. <laughs> It's the only measurement we have. We have 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if we'd give him more, we could. Why? Because he's worthy of it. And I think David tapped into that. David would spend billions of dollars funding Levites to sit in an empty room and sing songs to the Lord. And I'm telling you, there's a generation emerging that's going to stand in the holy place and tend to the Lord. This whole idea of loving him and ministering to him, like we are getting renewed around what ministry is. Is ministry to one another? Yes, but it has to begin with ministry to him. Yes. It has to begin with us learning to love him. It has to learn, begin with us like breaking cultural Christianity over our knee. Like we can't do it anymore. We need more. A generation's looking for more and we have what it takes. Selah, I feel like I have a machine gun right now. (laughs) I love you. Hey, don't take my word for it. I just gave you a lot. I gave you a whole lot. We talked about Old Testament revivals. I talked about a tabernacle of David. You haven't heard tabernacle of David. Weigh it. Go to scripture. See if what I'm saying is true. If it is, like I just believe there's more to the story, guys. There's more. There's more for us. And I think it begins in the morning at 6 a.m. when we have a worship team and, and intercessors. And, man, we start tending to the ark of the Lord. We're enthroning him. We're bringing forth his kingdom to the city. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Your servant is listening. Hey, we have a prayer team up here. We've had a wild night tonight. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, hey, I have a, we, have a, we have a prayer team.